Good morning. Pastor Ryan stole like half of my introduction, so <laughs> I gotta ad-lib a little bit. Um, I'll be preaching out of Genesis chapter 22 today, so if you have your Bible or, uh, or your Bible app, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, we are continuing this morning in our, uh, in our series on uh, the book of Genesis. We've called it Origins. Uh, and, and right now, the, the origin that we've been looking at over the last few weeks and few months and, and going into the next few months, uh, it's the origin of the promise. And we've, we've traced the promise of God to his covenant people through the line of Abraham. Uh, and and it's, been, it's been quite a, quite a road, and it's been quite intense. And uh, this week is, uh, is, is kind of like the the crown jewel of Genesis. And, and I know I was, I was technically supposed to preach next week. Um, I think, I, think I, I caught Pastor Ryan kicking the dust a few times when, when he had to pass this one on to me. But if I do a poor job, I, I give him permission to, to come up and preach Genesis 22 again next week. Um, so it's a win-win situation for us. Um, but if you'll stand with me, we're going to read, in lieu of reading the entire chapter of, of Genesis, we're going to read verses uh, 7 and 8 um, of, of Genesis 22, um, which I think represents the, the word to us this morning. So Genesis 22, 7 through 8, this is the word of the Lord. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, I do pray as we look into this heart-wrenching story of of anxiety and fear and the potential for loss, I, the, the, the stretching of faith and the reliance on you, I pray that you will stretch us this morning. I pray that you will help us to grow in our, our trust for you, our, our faith in you and, and our love for you, for you are the Lord who provides. And God, many of us here this morning are looking to you for your provision and, and, and for your help. And I pray that this would be a, an, an encouragement and a challenge to all of us. Open our ears and our hearts to your word uh, and, uh, and let me only be a vessel and not an object of distraction for people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so life was sweet in Beersheba, where uh, Abraham and Sarah lived. Things had finally started to settle down, which is good when you're in your early hundreds. Uh, they finally had a little place of their own. They had a, a child that they had named Laughter. He was the, the light of their little world, little Isaac. God had come through on the promise that he made to Abraham back, back when he was still called Abram, around 40 years prior. I will make of you a great nation, the Lord said in Genesis 12. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Isaac was a youth, a lad, some might say, likely in his his early to mid-teen years. Since the, the sorrowful sending away of Ishmael and his mother about a decade before, laughter really did seem to permeate the lives of the covenant family. There was finally something to show for all the adventure and struggle and hardship. God had been faithful to his promise to his chosen family by grace. Abraham and Sarah had had made some poor and sinful choices in the attempt of accelerating the fulfillment of God's uh, promise to them, his plan. They they took matters into their own hands and, and threatened in many times the the fulfillment of God's promise. Twice, Abraham had allowed his wife to go into the harem of another man. Sarah scoffed at God's promise that she would bear a son in her old age. Abraham and Sarah together agreed to use her servant Hagar as a surrogate. And they made a son their own way, named him Ishmael. Finally, they, they sent Hagar and Ishmael east, out of their lives, out of their land. They, they had suffered consequences for, for many of the sinful choices they made, for, for their sins. But God was faithful to the covenant promise that he had, he had given to, to Abraham. And he had counted Abraham's faith, not Abraham's faithfulness, as righteousness. And then there was Isaac, the hope of Abraham, personified. After everything, he had his son. And through him, God's everlasting covenant would be made. And then, Abraham heard the familiar sound of God's voice thundering from the heavens. In Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 and 2, after these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This wasn't the first time God had spoken to Abraham in such a way. In Genesis 12, God likewise called Abraham to to go to a land that he would show him. And that's what kicked off this whole saga of Abraham's role in redemptive history. God told him to go and, and he went. But now, mercifully, we're we're told that God is testing Abraham. He's testing him. This is only a test. One commentator points out that knowing that this is a test serves to cushion us, the listeners, the readers, from the the full impact of the the horrific command to Abraham. And it diverts attention away from the question of whether or not Isaac's going to be killed to whether or not Abraham is going to be faithful. Is he going to go through with it? Will he stand up to the test? We know from the get-go that this is a test. Isaac will not be killed at the end of this story. Spoiler alert. 
So we know the Israelites who first received Genesis through Moses in the wilderness, they knew that this was a test because clearly their ancestor lived and they existed. But see, Abraham didn't know that this was a test. He heard the word of God call him to action. God told him to go to Moriah with his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac, and to sacrifice him there on the mountain. Would he obey? God had been clear. Isaac was the promised son. He was the son through whom the covenant was to pass after Abraham. The life, the future, the very hope of Abraham was intimately connected to this beloved only son, Isaac. Ishmael was gone. Abraham was beyond geriatric. So was his wife. This was the only son they were getting. Not to mention, on top of all that, the, the very real paternal love that Abraham had for his boy. This was his son, his laughter. His role in life was to protect and provide for and disciple and enjoy Isaac. Sacrifice him? Slaughter and, and burn him? When God calls us to obey him to the point of, of deep and painful sacrifice, we're tempted to, to withhold something, that, that most important thing to us, whatever it is. And that proves our heart. That tests our heart and shows that we sinfully value stuff more than the God who has created and blessed and redeemed and provided us with that stuff to begin with. This test of Abraham is, uh, is just to determine that, right? It's to determine just that. What really makes Abraham tick? What is he really about? Is it true trust and devotion in, uh, to the Lord? Or is it the desire for blessings and, uh, that, that God can, can provide Will, will we trust and obey God to the end, even through great tests and trials? Throughout the scriptures, God tests his people. He tested the Israelites in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The manna from heaven was God's provision for his people, but it was also a test. Would they obey God? The entire 40-year wandering in the wilderness was a test, brought about because of the unbelief of the people when they got to the promised land the first time. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, it it says, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. These tests are for the good of God's people. The tests aren't for God. The Lord is sovereign. He is the omniscient God. He knows all things. He declares the end from the beginning. He knew whether or not Israel would go out and gather too much manna for themselves. He knew. He knew how the the Israelites would handle their time in the wilderness, in the desert. And he knew before he created the world that Abraham would take Isaac to Moriah and slaughter him and offer him as a burnt offering unless the Lord stepped in. God tests our faith not so that he can know something that he doesn't know. It's so that we can. He tests our faith to stretch our faith. This is a hard and glorious truth. We, we always, I, I hear it every time I pray in a small group or, or any other kind of group, we pray for an increase of faith in God during all seasons of life, good and bad. We, we pray for more faith, and then the next week we cry out to God to, to put an end, to put a stop to those circumstances by which he increases it, right? James chapter 1 verse 3 reminds us, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. May the Lord stretch and strengthen our faith that we too would trust him with even our most precious hope, our Isaacs. Let's continue reading in Genesis 22, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Without any description of the thoughts and emotions of Abraham, which undoubtedly would have been tumultuous and painful, we read of his immediate response of obedience to God's call. Just as he had in Genesis 12, Abraham prepares for his journey. He sets out early the next morning. He saddles his donkey, grabs his helpers and his son, and cuts the wood that he would need for the deed. And off he goes. So far, it appears that Abraham is single-minded and focused on his objective. God has commanded, and so he goes. It's easy to hesitate, to procrastinate, even when our task isn't that unpleasant. How much more when it's an unpleasant task and, and how much more for, for, for Abraham would he have been tempted to drag his feet in taking his beloved son on a 56-mile death march from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. But Abraham's promptness to obey stands in contrast to his, his nephew Lot in Genesis 19, Right? We, we read about him lingering in Sodom even when its destruction was imminent. Abraham, Abraham goes. He's immediately obedient. I can't tell you how often my kids have heard this phrase 
in my house. Delayed obedience is disobedience, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. If you have to, if you, if you decide to do it later after, after mom or dad tells you to do it, you've, you've already been disobedient before you were obedient. So de- delayed obedience is disobedience. Abraham serves as a model for the people of God of what faith lived out looks like. When God calls us to act, we act. When he, when he calls us to, to go it slow, then we, then we go it slow. We take the, the long, faithful route. And when God calls us to wait, we wait. Genesis 22, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. The tempo of the story slows down a little bit. After three days of traveling, roughly 18 miles per day, they see Moriah. Abraham sees the mountain that the Lord has singled out for him to perform that sacrifice of Isaac. Again, we get no description in Genesis of Abraham's thoughts and feelings at the moment. But we're given a hint that this was a weighty moment for him. Whenever we see in scripture that someone lifts up their eyes, when they lift up their eyes, that act is meant to be read slowly and and it's poignant. It means that they're about to behold something of great significance. Later in this chapter, Abraham will again lift up his eyes. And what he sees will change everything. But in this moment, the weightiness of Mount Moriah looms heavy on him. Was he tempted to turn back south to Beersheba? What kept him going in this moment? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we we read uh, the author quotes uh, the book of Deuteronomy And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Abraham is going, but he's not going alone. The Lord promises his presence to us in Christ that whatever trials and sufferings and testing we're going through, we're never abandoned. Abraham walked on to Moriah through a tragic circumstance, not because it was easy, but because he knew that God walked with him. Genesis 22, verses 5 through 8. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. In view of the mountain, Abraham tells his servants to stay with the animals. The terrain is about to get steep and rocky, so this re- request wouldn't have seemed out of the ordinary to the, to the men. But Abraham also knew what was to happen once they got to the top. He hadn't told anyone 
what the full plan was, probably to keep them from interfering with God's revealed purpose for the trip. But look at his words to the servants. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The, the exalted father, Abraham, demonstrates true faith in assuring these men that they, not he, would return. Abraham lays the wood on his son and as they begin the incline up the mountain, foreshadowing another beloved son carrying his own wooden platform of execution up that same hill some two millennia later. The father and the son climb up the hill. So they went both of them together. We feel the isolation in this scene. Abraham and Isaac travel together, but Abraham must have felt completely alone. His son innocently asks the question, where's the lamb, dad? Children and youth have a way of asking innocent questions in a way that feels like a cold knife in your heart, right? Whether, whether they're asking a barren woman why they don't have any kids, or a man with a ponytail why he looks like a girl, they mean well, but it can magnify the pain buried deep in, in their heart already. You can imagine Abraham's long pause to think of how to answer Isaac's question. God will provide for himself the lamb of a burnt offering, my son. And the line is repeated, thus they went both of them together. These two set of statements, thus they went both of them together. This, this is called an, an inclusio in literature. And it, they tend to act like a, like a literary highlighter, right? It, when you see an inclusio, it means pay attention to what's in between. This is important. It may be the most important part of the story. Because right in between those two statements, we read, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And oh, does he ever. It's, it's at this point, the commentators disagree. Was it starting to dawn on Isaac why there might not have been a lamb? He's probably around 13 years old. Some traditions have him even older. Unless Abraham's poker face was absolutely legendary, he had to be showing some kind of emotion. I'm not a crier, but I've had far less taxing experiences where I had to pause and swallow a lump in my throat because I didn't want to cry in front of people that I didn't know very well. But even then, you can usually tell that I'm, I'm affected by a circumstance, right? Certainly, Isaac must have suspected that something was at least a little off. He wouldn't have asked his father that question to begin with. Somewhere up that hill, I believe that it was starting to dawn on Isaac that there was a reason why there wasn't a lamb going with them. And yet, they went both of them together. This was Abraham's test. But real faith is demonstrated here by both father and son. As Isaac 
carried the wood up the mountain. He trusted both his father and his father's God. Isaiah draws on this imagery as he prophesies the the crucifixion of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He says, There it is. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. An obedient son, a male lamb without blemish as required for the burnt offering for sin. The story continues in Verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The offering is prepared. Step by step, the author builds anticipation. Abraham builds the altar. He lays the wood in order. And then he binds Isaac, his son, reminds the author as if we forgot, adding to the heartbreak of the moment. What looks were exchanged? What words were spoken between father and son in that moment? I'm sorry, my boy. It's okay, Isaac. We've got to trust in the Lord. He lays his son on the altar, on top of the wood. Can you feel the drama, the anguish in this moment? Remember, we've known since the beginning that this is all a test. It's a test of Abraham's faith. Faith, we read in Hebrews 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham's son, his only son, his beloved son, is the promise of God's faithfulness to him. And he's lying there on top of an altar, on top of a mountain, on top of the world. Where is Abraham's hope now? What is it that he is convicted of that he doesn't see? We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He believed. He trusted in the Lord. And so the time had come. His faith in God was secure. He grits his teeth, controls his trembling hands, wipes the snot and tears off of his face with his robe. He reaches out his hand, takes hold of the knife, grabs his son's hair and pulls his head back to expose his throat. What kind of people kill their own children? It's usually those who are either violently wicked 
severely mentally ill or tragically deceived. Either way, the capacity for compassion and love has to be severely repressed for someone to go through such a terrible act to their own child. But Abraham is neither wicked nor mentally ill nor deceived. There is no love or compassion being held back here. He is genuinely heartbroken at this moment. But he is not going through the motions. He's not putting on a show for the everlasting, all-knowing, promise-keeping God. Abraham is about to slaughter his son and to burn him for no other reason than to complete the, 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 the command of his Lord. He is abandoned in his obedience to God. And so he takes the knife to slaughter his son and then verse 11 rings like a bell. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He passed the test. The Lord intervened. God urgently calls out to stop the slaying. Abraham, Abraham. And the relief of Abraham is palpable. Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. God, God has never, he has never required human sacrifice from his people. Now that doesn't mean that people have never given human sacrifices as offerings, even to God, but this was never required in the Old Testament or the New, and it was never commanded. When it happened, it always, it is always condemned. We repeatedly see this throughout the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, tells us uh, God is condemning his, the people. He says, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. The omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign God never even came into his mind that he would want people to offer their children to him for real. This was a test. But Abraham didn't know that. This test was real. And it was excruciating but it's over. Verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I told you earlier that whenever someone in scripture lifts up their eyes to behold something, it is always of great significance. Before, Abraham had lifted up his eyes to see the mountain where the beloved son would be sacrificed. Now, he lifts up his eyes to see the substitute, a ram caught in a thicket. Maybe if you can imagine 
a little crown of thorns around its horns. Abraham takes it and offers the ram instead of his son as a burnt offering. This is why chapter two is the crown jewel of Genesis. Because there may be no more clear foreshadowing in all of the Old Testament of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only begotten, beloved, innocent Son of God for each and every sinner who turns to him in faith. The substitutionary atonement is the, is the core of the gospel. It is the core. It was the core of the worship practices of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 16, throughout the chapter, we see an example of of this atoning sacrifice, this substitution. In verses 2 and 3, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. There's a substitute who who dies in the place even of the priest. For sinful humans to stand before the Lord without fear of judgment, there must be a pure, spotless male animal whose blood is shed in their place. Leviticus institutionalizes the experience of this test of Abraham for all Israel. The people of Israel are to see themselves as Isaac. And so are we. We need a substitutionary sacrifice. We need a substitute who will stand there and die on our behalf. And we're taught in Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The author continues, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Where do we find a sacrifice that can justify us sinners before a holy and righteous God? Well, listen to the words of John the Baptist. If you hear nothing else this morning, John chapter 1 Verse 29 says, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the Ram. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, who stands in your place, who climbed Mount Moriah, who took on the sacrifice. Abraham, in obedience to the word of God, brought his own beloved son carrying wood up Mount Moriah, the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem would someday be established, to to be offered, to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering of atonement. He did not withhold him from God, and on the mountain of the Lord, God provided. When God's son made that same climb up that same mountain, carrying the wooden cross on his back, God would provide no substitute. There was no ram who could take the place of Jesus, for he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord will provide.
verses 15 through 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. As the voice of the Lord sounded from the heavens, the men, the man of faith, the exalted father of many, the ecstatic father of Isaac, had his laughter returned to him for the first time in four days. Now, for the first time, the only time in all of Scripture, God adds an oath to his promise. I will surely, by my name I swear, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. They will possess the gate of their enemies. And through them, God would bless the whole earth. Abraham already had God's promise. He already had a covenant with the Lord. Now there's an oath to guarantee this end. The Lord will provide. So what? Will I give up my Isaacs in trusting obedience to the Lord? In Genesis 22, Abraham becomes the model of faith for all mankind, but especially Christ followers. When God tests your faith when, with unimaginably difficult de- demands for wholehearted obedience, will you trust him to be faithful to his promises? Beloved brothers and sisters, you must trust God. We cannot be divided in our devotion to God our Father and the Lord Jesus. As our faith is tested in this world, let us strive for the blessing laid out in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On the mountain of God, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God tests The God who tests is also the God who provides. The Father, our Father, he has not withheld his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the wood-bearing, submissive, perfect, sinless Son of God. We are saved through true faith like Abraham. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, God's own beloved Son, the Lord provides the righteousness required for eternal fellowship with him and adoption into his family. By our faith in Jesus, who carried his wooden altar up Mount Moriah in submission to his Father, heard no divine command for the people to stay there executing hand. God has made him our substitute. He, as Peter said, 
suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul in Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This God, our Lord, our exalted Father, can be trusted with everything. Lift up your eyes. On the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided for you. Knowing this, you can give up your Isaacs as well and delight in the Lord who provides. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are merciful and mighty. You are wise and you know, you know what we need before we even need it. I pray, Lord, for faith like Abraham. I pray, Lord, that you would be the dearest thing in our hearts, that each of us, as we go forward from this place, we would know that there is no Isaac in the world that, is, that, that outvalues you. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be changed, that we would be moved, that we would grow in our love for you and for one another, as an expression of perfect faith. And God, we give you glory for providing for us the ram of sacrifice, the substitute. Lord, we exalt you, we lift up Jesus, we praise you for for giving us the one who submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, that he might make us righteous before an, an ever living father. All praise to you, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.